Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm Duncan Mitchell. I'm chair of the Aviation Medicine Group here at the Society. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all here uh, on behalf of the President of the Aeronautical Society uh, to this year's Stuart Memorial Lecture. It is my great pleasure now to introduce uh, the chair of the Stuart Trustees, who will now introduce the lecture and the lecturer. Uh, Vice Marshal Doherty. Lady Matthews, honoured guests, Surgeon General, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure as Chairman of the Stuart Trustees to welcome you here this evening to the Stuart Lecture. As you may know, this was established in 1970, 1969, and today is the 27th lecture in the series. Tonight's lecture is Wing Commander Matt Lewis, consultant in aviation medicine from the RAF Centre of Aviation Medicine at RAF Henlow. Wing Commander Lewis is a 1985 graduate in medicine from the University of Wales College of Medicine. He was commissioned into the Royal Air Force in 1994 and initially stationed at RAF Leeming. He was trained in aviation medicine at the Farnborough and at Henlow and appointed a consultant in aviation medicine in 2006. Presently, he is the head of human factors and the biomechanics sections. He has been the principal investigator in over 130 aircraft accidents and provides expert advice to UK military commands on all aspects of accident investigation, aircraft crash worthiness and escape systems, and assessments of aircrew equipment, assemblies and survival equipment. His presentation tonight is entitled Into Thin Air and Thick Mud, Aircraft Accidents and How to Survive Them. Matt. Chief of Staff, Lady Matthews, Sirs, Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Um, my topic tonight really has been stolen from Shakespeare, Gibson, uh, Harrison and various other people uh, who've used it in the past. And it's the thin air bit I'm not actually going to concentrate on at all today. What I'm going to talk about is the thick mud bit. And uh, Air Commodore Bill Stewart, uh, well, then an Air Commodore in 1958, uh, was giving a lecture not far from here at the Royal Society of Medicine when he was talking about uh, what aviation medicine is all about and, and the function of the uh, Institute of Aviation Medicine. And he said that uh, it is to investigate those factors which impair the efficiency of flying personnel in flight and impair their chances of safety or survival in emergencies in flight or thereafter on sea or land. And it's the last part of that statement that I want to concentrate on tonight. As all medical lectures should uh, begin with the incidents and epidemiology, this is going to be no different. First of all, uh, I want to have a look at uh, the state of the accident rates currently uh, worldwide. The red graph here shows the, the accident rate per million flying hours or per million departures, and it uh, works out at a fatal accident rate of about 0.2 per million uh, flying hours. And with the projected growth of uh, air traffic over the years, uh, some brainy boffin somewhere has worked out that by sort of 2020, 2015, if the current rate of growth continues, then the actual number of accidents will result 
in one large aircraft crash uh, occurring somewhere in the world uh, every week, which is quite a horrific statement. But in the UK, we're probably doing slightly better than that at the moment. We re we've really had no major uh, airline fatalities since the, around the, the 1980s with the, the Manchester uh, Air Tours crash um, and also the uh, Boeing 737 uh, at Kegworth. And I'll mention a bit more about those later. Uh, up until this year, really, when uh, everybody's heart sunk, when a treble seven uh, crashed um, on approach uh, to Heathrow. But fortunately for that, uh, there were no fatalities. But looking at uh, the RAF's uh, accident rate, these are sort of the current figures uh, that we have. And as you can see, this red line shows there's been a, a dramatic improvement in the fast jet accident rate uh, over the years. But the sort of altogether tri-accident, uh, tri-service accident rate, this uh, pinky purple line here shows that it's been sort of hovering around about sort of 0.2 per 10,000 flying hours uh, for the fast uh, few years. And it's dipped down occasionally uh, a few years ago, but it's slightly increased uh, over the last uh, couple of years uh, with the uh, developments in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's where we're flying, and that's where the crashes have been occurring. But if we try and sort of put this into some sort of perspective... Uh, if we look at the uh, European road uh, fatalities, uh, for the European community, uh, approximately 41,000 people are actually killed on the roads, uh, which is quite a huge figure. And if you compare that to uh, the USA, uh, this data is from the National Highway Transportation Safety um, uh, Administration, there are approximately 42,000 road deaths uh, in, uh, in the States for a sort of similar-sized population. So in comparison what's happening on the roads, uh, the Air Force, the airlines, are actually doing pretty well. If we have a look at the, sort of the death rates, and this is taken from the Office of uh, National Statistics, uh, there were 15 deaths uh, in aviation accidents in 2005. That's the latest data that, that has been published. Um, that doesn't include uh, those deaths which occurred uh, during hostilities in Iraq and Afghanistan during that year. But on the roads, there were 13,011 automobile uh, fatalities and uh, 28 deaths by misadventures uh, during surgical and medical procedures. And maybe we should be having uh, fear of uh, doctors' uh, programs rather than fear of flying programs. And equate that to sort of where... Uh, we are with the uh, airline fatalities. In 2007, there were 631 uh, passenger fatalities worldwide. But it's always quite difficult in trying to sort of work out what's the denominator in these to try and work, determine which uh, form of transport uh, is actually the safest form. And looking at the whole population uh, of the UK and the, the European community, uh, there is a 1 in 18,000 chance of actually being killed on the roads whereas uh, the only data I have is, is an equivalent figure in the U.S. where there's one in 11 million chance of being killed uh, in an aviation uh, crash. However, there are problems in looking at this in, in the fact that if you don't uh, actually go in an airplane, you're not likely to be killed in an air crash. Uh, so your chances are of actually an aircraft falling on your head uh, is probably considerably less. But anyway, um, it is unlikely that you will suffer uh, in, in your lifetime uh, uh, being killed uh, during an air crash. 
However, uh, since uh, flight uh, first began in 1903, uh, aviation crashes and aviation fatalities have been a problem. And the first aviation fatality occurred in this aircraft in 1908, five years after the, uh, the first flight, and a chap called uh, Thomas Selfridge was acting as an in-flight observer during this uh, uh, flight, and the uh, prop actually uh, broke, it shattered, and the aircraft fell from a height of about 75 feet. Uh, Thomas Selfridge sustained a uh, substantial uh, skull fracture and died later from his uh, injuries. He was uh, in the aircraft, which was piloted by Orville Wright, who sustained uh, some injuries. He had a, a fractured uh, pelvis, I believe, um, but he managed to survive uh, that crash. But f subsequently to that crash, uh, some people actually did use uh, some form of uh, head protection, and there's been cases documented that uh, people had actually used um, uh, American football helmets during flight to try and give them some protection. But over the next three years or so following that crash, there were f uh, 33 fatal uh, air crashes. And really, crash survivability wasn't particularly high on people's list of, th of things to do. They were much more concerned with the structural reliability of the aircraft, actually trying to get the things to fly and control the aircraft. Um, but I managed to find uh, a patent from 1895, which, as, as far as I'm concerned, it was the first sort of crash-worthiness mod modification. It wasn't in a powered aircraft, but a sort of glorified hand glider, and it was flown and designed by uh, Otto Lilienthal. Um, and essentially, this Prell bugle uh, contraption was a willow, a wooden circular uh, disc, literally, around the pilot, so that in the event of the crash, this uh, willow uh, disc would absorb some of the energy and hopefully prevent, uh, prevent any fatalities. Uh, unfortunately for Otto, he was killed uh, the following year when he was actually flying one of these uh, devices, but without the Prell Bugle uh, system, so uh, more fool him. But during these early years, restraint, again, wasn't particularly high on people's uh, list of priorities. Uh, it was provided in some aircraft, but it was there as a means to stop people falling out of the aircraft rather than protecting them in a crash. Um, and uh, a report by a, uh, a Royal Navy doctor uh, suggested that uh, safety belts should be worn, but before the landing, they should be uh, undone. Uh, what do you expect, really, from the Navy? They don't know anything about aeroplanes. Um, but the, the concern really was, in these early flights, uh, the fact that if it flipped over or there was a post-crash fire, they wouldn't be able to escape, uh, and they'd all end up uh, being killed. However, the same doctor, I uh, quickly add, uh, in a subsequent report later that year, suggested that maybe a restraint system should be uh, maintained uh, and kept uh, attached through, through to uh, landing. But the, the first sort of early analysis of, of, of crashes came uh, just after World War I. Uh, this report was from uh, 1919, uh, where the analysis suggested that 2% of all fatalities were caused by enemy action, uh, 8% uh, were due to a, a technical failure, and 90% were due to the flyer himself. And really, crash survivability wasn't a priority. They thought they'd be far better in putting forward methods of selecting the right people, training the right individuals so that they didn't crash. Um, 
And if you look at some of the current data, certainly uh, this data was presented by the U.S. in asthma last year, it suggests that over 90% of their crashes still today are caused by some human factors failing. So maybe over the sort of 100 odd years of flight, we actually haven't progressed that far. But there are some interesting milestones which were hugely significant, really, to accident investigation. Uh, in 1917, this particular gentleman... Uh, Hugh de Haven was involved in an aviation crash. He was flying for the Canadian Air Force and um, he crashed his aircraft and he sustained quite substantial abdominal injuries. And uh, while he was lying recuperating in bed for weeks on end, um, he sort of put his mind to actually analysing his crash and trying to determine what caused these injuries. And essentially he suggested that his restraint harness was instrumental in causing his abdominal injuries. At the time he was wearing a sort of a thick leather belt about five inches uh, across with a great big sharp pointed um, buckle. Uh, and it was him flailing forward and causing uh, uh, him sort of collapsing over the um, restraint harness that caused his inju injuries. And after he worked this out, he really didn't do much in crash uh, investigation over the subsequent years until in 1935 he was involved in a, a car crash. Uh, some would say he's rather accident-prone, but uh, there we go. Um, and uh, he then got interested in looking at uh, automobile crashes and, and, and aviation crashes. And he was quite uh, astounded, really, that not a lot had actually been done in the intervening years. And he managed to get funding, and he set up the, the Crash Injury Research Project uh, with funding from the American government. And uh, initially, he looked at 185 accidents uh, and then continued his work through, to, through the war years uh, until he... Uh, examined uh, 130, sorry, 833 accidents by 1947. And uh, through those years, he was still concerned that people weren't using uh, appropriate restraint. And part of his, uh, his developments that his team uh, put forward was the, the sort of standard three-point harness, uh, which is common to uh, automobiles these days. Um, but one of the major things that he uh, he looked at uh, was human tolerances to crash. And he suggested that up until this time, it had been grossly underestimated. And sort of in the early 1940s, uh, the human limits to uh, decelerations was around about 18 G. And then with the work of uh, Bill Stewart looking at ejection seats uh, during the latter part of the Second World War in the and 1940s, uh, they determined that sort of 25G really was sort of the limit, certainly for, for vertical decelerations. And then came along this uh, character here, uh, John Stapp, working for the U.S. Uh, Air Force, and he actually did some fantastic work looking at uh, the tolerance to humans. He had two... Rocket sleds, his first uh, he set up and used at Edwards Air Force Base, and he managed to uh, sustain decelerations of 30G in the sort of horizontal plane. Um, and then on the closure of that track, he, uh, he got an even faster and bigger uh, rocket sled uh, called the Sonic Wind, and that was at Holman Air Force Base. And at, this, at the time, he became the fastest man uh, on Earth uh, and reached a, a speed of 632 knots, uh, and uh, you can see here in decelerating, basically there was a, a sort of water trough at the end of the rocket track. Uh, and during that uh, deceleration, he reached peaks of um, 46G, which was quite uh, remarkable for the time. Uh, putting all this 
research together. These are the sort of the ballpark figures for human tolerances that, that are currently used. Um, having said that, they do depend on the magnitude and the duration that these forces act. Uh, but this 83G uh, is quite a huge uh, deceleration in the sort of backward direction, and that was only uh, tolerated for about 0 0.04 of a, of a second. Uh, but realistically, from practical purposes, uh, around about sort of 45G uh, rearwards is, pro is probably a better estimation of what uh, the human can tolerate without uh, rather uh, excessive uh, restraint systems. But the honor uh, for the highest surviving uh, person who's, who survived the highest deceleration goes to this gentleman, uh, David Purley, who some of you might have remembered, who was a Formula One uh, racing driver back in the 1970s. And he su sustained a crash uh, during practice at Silverstone for the British Grand Prix. And the analysis of the crash during uh, that uh, incident uh, suggested that he survived an impact of 177G, which I think is quite phenomenal, um, if you can actually believe those figures. The, the, sort of, the analysis that was done was very sort of much on a sort of a fag packet and a slide rule. Um, but uh, it is quite a huge deceleration that uh, he, he managed to survive. And the other thing to think about when you're looking at survivability of crashes uh, is not only the deceleration of, of the whole body, but actually the forward flail, the contact injury, sort of flailing forwards and impacting the uh, instrument panel, um, and also any missiles, loose articles, be they sort of weapons if you're in military flights or uh, duty-free bottles of gin uh, if you're in uh, passenger flights. So... What are the sort of cardinal rules for surviving a crash? Well, first of all, the first thing to do is choose wisely where you actually go and fly. Uh, this data uh, shows all of the fatality uh, rates per million flying hours for various countries and continents uh, throughout the, the world. Uh, basically, if you want to go on holidays, don't go on safari to Africa or do the Inca Trail uh, to Machu Picchu because your chances of being killed uh, are that much greater. Stick to going to visit the, the Grand Canyon or, uh, or certainly stay in Europe. These figures show uh, the crash rates for European countries. And uh, fortunately for us, we're down at the bottom, which is good, and also Germany is pretty good. So uh, choose wisely next time you book your holiday. And the other thing to uh, think about if you des decide to try and avoid crashing is avoid landing. Um, <laughs> it's a bit tricky unless you're an RAF pilot and you've got the ejection handle, but I don't think the Queen's going to be terribly keen on, on that means of uh, improving your survivability just to avoid the, la the landing, or if you're a parachutist. But these uh, figures are taken from the civilian world for a, a flight duration of about sort of an, an hour and a half. And basically, 61% uh, of all accidents occur from uh, the initial descent through to landing. Takeoff, uh, slightly more hazardous uh, at sort of 25% of all accidents. And in the cruise, that's the safest bit with only 6% uh, of accidents. If you, if you actually look at the um, military side of things... Uh, it's all slightly different. I put the word cruise in inverted commas, really, because RAF pilots don't really cruise around. That's where they do the dangerous bit, and that's where they come a cropper. Uh, in that, when I looked at the data for this, 74% of all fast jet accidents occur in the, the cruise, or whatever that means. Um, they're a lot better at landing. Uh, only 16% of all uh, crashes occurring during landing. But um, when I looked at these figures, there seemed to be a recurring pattern that uh, a lot of Hawk pilots 
seem to be crashing more often uh, during the takeoff and landing, and person experience seems to be going to RAF Valley and Mona with monotonous regularity. And when you actually look at those figures, uh, Hawk pilots in particular uh, crash at 24% of the time uh, during the descent and landing. Uh, in the cruise, it's only sort of dropped down to 52%. And if you compare that operational aircraft to Hawk aircraft, um, you see it's statistically significant that they are more likely to crash during the takeoff and landing. Why is that? Hawk pilots are trainee pilots. So consequently, they're learning to land, they're learning to, um, to take off, and that's where they come a cropper. It's all down to sort of human factors issues. The other option is to eject. Um, and these are the current RAF uh, figures for um, our fast jet aircraft. And uh, don't worry too much about all these other uh, aircraft types. Just look at the totals. Uh, if you eject within envelope, you've got a, a sort of 96% chance of surviving. If you eject out of envelope, um, about sort of just under 24% uh, chance of surviving. Compare that with not uh, ejecting. These are the control fighting ter terrain uh, injury uh, survivability data and mid-air collisions. And as you can see, your chances of surviving uh, that are much less. Uh, so it's worth a, worth a punt, really. If you're, you're slightly out of envelope, give it a go. You might survive. But 400 knots into the side of a mountain, you're not. The only um, interesting thing, really, is the Harrier data, um, slightly higher than all the others. And that's really a function of what happened in these crashes. Harriers, in the hover, engine fails, drops down, hits the ground. Uh, and because the, the dynamics of those crashes are more survivable, that's why we're seeing this slightly higher peak. Uh, uh, this is the old GR1-type Harriers. Uh, fortunately, the GR5s and the GR7s that we're currently flying, uh, we haven't had such a, an accident. So that's why that is zero uh, in those cases. Um, and uh, where we've had... Um, uh, control flight into terrains, they've usually been at a high rate of knots, so the survival rate hasn't been uh, good at all. But the numbers for those Harriers are quite low. The other thing to think about is how you define a survivable crash. Boards of inquiry always want to know why uh, did some people survive, why didn't they survive, and was the crash survivable? And the best definition uh, of a survivable crash is, uh, I have found from the uh, National Transportation Safety Board in, in the U.S., who define a survivable crash as one where the occupiable space remains intact, the impact forces are within uh, human tolerance limits, and the restraints retain the seat occupants. Looking at seat location and survivability to see whether you're better off sitting at the front or the back. Uh, this data was taken from uh, an analysis of 20 fatal accidents from the NTSB uh, database in the States, and it shows that all the people who pay vast amounts of money to sit up front uh, do slightly worse off uh, with a 49% uh, fatality rate compared with those at the back with 69%. But this uh, data um, has a few holes in it and there are no sort of, there's no information to show whether this is actually statistically significant. And the other interesting thing is um, because at the front of the aircraft you've got first class and business class, you've got this huge flat open area in front of you, you've got vast amount of room to stretch your legs, does that mean if you had premium, uh, sorry, uh, if you had economy seats at the front, uh, where they're all nicely packed together, would this injury rate actually be that much lower? 
Who knows? And perhaps we need to sort of tease out this uh, data uh, in a bit more detail. But it's not the whole story, and there is uh, a number of quite uh, famous accidents, if you can have a famous accident, apologies if that offends anybody, um, which sort of contradict this. This is a, a photograph of the, the Kegworth uh, M1 crash, which I'm sure a lot of you will remember uh, in the audience. And if you look at the survivability rate, this uh, survivability uh, uh, pattern from, uh, from where people were sitting, the, the red uh, squares show uh, the seriously injured or fatal uh, occupants, and the green so those with uh, survivors with minor injuries. And as you can see, there's a pattern. The, the central green uh, portion, literally this is the overwing area, um, and also you've got uh, a high number of greens um, at the rear end. And uh, essentially where you look uh, where the actual integrity of, of the cabin uh, was breached, uh, you've got a crack literally down this end uh, of the, the aircraft and also at the front here and here. And that's where you have a high uh, increase uh, in serious injuries or fatalities. It's where the, the actual fuselage was breached. And a similar pattern um, occurred with the, the DC-10 crash in United Airlines uh, at Sioux City, which I'm sure you've all seen the TV programs about, where they had a, a, a total hydraulics failure, and the crew uh, managed to land the aircraft just on the uh, varying the thrust of, of the engines. But in that, you've got the same pattern of injury. Where the, the fuselage was breached, and you've got major cracks through the fuselage, you've got high fatality rates here, and also at the back, and these zigzag lines show where there was fractures uh, through the, the fuselage. And you've got this central portion here where you've got a much higher uh, incidence or higher rate uh, of surviving uh, people. So what, uh, what, do we can, what can we learn about treble seven crashes at Heathrow? Um, 152 people on board. Where's the safest place to, to sit? Anywhere, really, uh, if you look at these seats apart from row 30 seat K and this is a photograph uh, showing uh, where the, the most serious injury was sustained it was just a, a fractured uh, leg um, but what happened here was the uh, right uh, undercarriage sheared off and it, uh, it hit the side of the fuselage there calling, causing this uh, indentation here uh, so on the whole looking at that uh, aircraft and, and the, the fact that it's uh, reasonably well intact uh, would indicate that the um, decelerations were relatively minor. But the Kegworth crash and also the Heathrow treble seven crash um, have amazing similarities, yet the outcomes are considerably uh, different. This shows the approach uh, to Kegworth, and basically they were both beyond, below the, the normal glide path for various reasons. But when you look at the crash sites, you can see how lucky the people at Heathrow were. This is Kegworth, and this is the, the impact point of the uh, 737. And as you can see, the reason why those injuries were so severe in that crash was the fact that the M1 was there. Had this accident occurred maybe coming in on the other approach, and they dropped down the other side of the M25, it could have been a sort of copycat um, accident. Um, and because it had this hugely long, flat uh, area where it could slide across the grass and the tarmac, uh, the decelerations were acting over a much longer period, over a much longer distance. So the decelerations acting on the individuals in that aircraft 
were well below uh, the injury tolerance levels. Uh, whereas for Kegworth, uh, the initial impact, and this is data from the AIB report at the time, the initial impact was only 2 to 3G, which is easily walkable away from. Um, the big problem occurred when it went down the cutting of the M25 and hit the far uh, bank. And there, the uh, decelerations were around about sort of 25, 30 G. And that's where most of the injuries were occurred. occurred. So this thing that landed at Heathrow today, uh, for the first time, where do you go and sit when you go on one of those? Top deck or bottom deck? Um, my preference is that seat there, right by the emergency exit on the top deck, um, because you've got a huge stopping distance and crumple zone. You've got all the passengers below you to absorb the energy of the crash and uh, allow you to slide down the emergency evacuation slide from that seat, um, which, if you look at this um, 747 crash, sort of illustrates the problem. There you've got this huge crumple zone underneath, and all the people here up in club class uh, walk away quite nicely. So that's where I'm going to be sitting. What about then helicopter crashes? Should you sit down the back or should you actually be piloting the aircraft? Uh, this is a crash, uh, an RAF crash from a few years ago up at Shawbury, uh, where the pilot managed to walk away with nothing more than a few cuts and bruises. And really the big uh, concern uh, or thing you need to think about is the sort of uh, the impact angle. If it impacts nose first, the pilot and co-pilot are going to uh, absorb most of the energy and end up with significant injuries, and all the people down the back will walk away, which has occurred on many, many uh, occasions. If it lands flat, uh, then the people down the back tend not to be uh, so well protected because they only have lap straps, uh, and one or two of them have uh, three-point restraint harnesses, so the restraint is much less, whereas the people at the front... Uh, the pilot and co-pilot uh, will have five-point uh, restraint harnesses and they can quite easily walk away when all the people down the back are hobbling away. But the other thing to think about is rotor blade intrusion. And if I was going to be at the front, uh, the seat I would want to be in is the one on the same side as the tail rotor. So that when these things go asymmetrical and start thrashing downwards... Uh, the person in the left-hand seat here on this uh, Merlin is likely to do far worse than the person on the other side because you've got all these rotor blades slicing through the cabin and uh, some of the injuries you can actually get are quite horrific. It just acts like a, a, a guillotine and you'll end up with decapitations, uh, severed limbs and various other things which has occurred uh, on a number of occasions both in the military and civilian world. The other thing to think about is restraints. And people down the back may or may not be restrained. Um, as you can see, good for air crew, or sorry, it's good for the soldiers to be poised, ready to deplane the aircraft, um, uh, shooting, and as you can see, he's fallen out there. Um, and if that happens, all bets are off. If you fall out of that aircraft because you're not restrained properly, um, you're going to end up with major injuries and certainly... Uh, we've seen uh, a number of fatal injuries be caused by people falling out of the aircraft. But you've got to balance the operational requirement for sort of getting out, getting the job done, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, attacking the enemy, enemy. But if you're not restrained, you're going to end up with uh, serious problems. If you do want to survive a crash, even if you are restrained in the appropriate position, to increase your chances of survivability, uh, you need to think of a suitable brace position. And these... Uh, bullet points here illustrate the things you need to think about 
uh, in designing a brace position uh, and ensuring that you survive. You want to reduce the strike envelope so you sort of tuck yourself into a ball and you adopt the typical brace position that everybody knows about when they fly uh, civilian airlines uh, so that your arms and legs are sort of braced so they don't flail forward and hit the seat or uh, in front of you. You need to present a smaller human target for flying debris uh, if the overhead bins fail and you've got all the baggage and, uh, uh, and duty-free uh, bottles of, of, of gin flailing forward. You want to stabilize the seat to minimize disorientation. You want to minimize the profile to in rushing water and provide a good reference uh, from which to reorientate yourself uh, should the need arise. Now, these last three uh, points are probably not hugely relevant uh, in the sort of civil aviation world or even in sort of the large transport aircraft in the military. But they are particularly important uh, for helicopter uh, accidents as this uh, approach and crash ably illustrates. What's happened is he's coming far too low and he actually catches the undercarriage on this netting around... The, uh, the platform. There it is, you can see it just there. And it tumbles in straight into the water. And um, I dare say they weren't braced during that um, impact. Uh, they had no recollection that things were going horribly wrong until it went horribly wrong. Uh, and consequently, as they inverted uh, and tumbled over the side, uh, then if you've got a decent brace position uh, set up, uh, you can actually reorientate yourself and hopefully get out of that uh, uh, situation. But the other option you can think about um, is the position of your seats. And this has been known about for, for many, many years, and certainly the work uh, that John Stapp did uh, has illustrated the importance of rear-facing seats and how much more uh, accelerations you can actually tolerate uh, it when you're, you're facing backwards. And uh, fortunately for the RAF, we actually do have rear-facing seats in, in this beast, the VC-10. It's one of the few aircraft uh, in the world that does have rear-facing seats. Uh, the other option, you can fly British Airways Club Class, uh, where you have alternating uh, uh, forward and rear-facing seats. Um, or you can become uh, a member of the crew. And uh, this crash, uh, which is an Air France crash at uh, Toronto Air uh, Airport, uh, I think it's about 2005, uh, one of the cabin crew who was in the same general area as some passengers in the forward-facing uh, seats, uh, the passengers were injured because of the high decelerations in that particular part of the aircraft, uh, but the cabin crew who was sat in one of these type of rear-facing seats walked away with not, nothing more than a, a few scratches. So it brings home the importance of rear-facing seats, and I, I dare say the only way we'll get that in the civil world is, is by legislation because of the attendant costs that are, are associated uh, with rear-facing seats. But some of the um, other seats you see on board aircraft um, also have um, slight problems. Uh, if you're a major player these days, you need the flatbeds uh, in, in your upper class, uh, first class and business classes. And, uh, in order to get more seats in and still provide them with, uh, with a flatbed, uh, some of the arrangements, uh, are such that they are about sort of 45 degrees to, to the direction of travel. So in the event, uh, of a crash, you will have quite significant, um, sideways facing, uh, sideways, uh, acting, uh, accelerations. Uh, and you need to do something about that. And also, it has become known that uh, these type seats, which I quite like because they give you extra leg room, 
um, are not particularly good uh, in a crash. And if I just illustrate that by this movie. Well, if I could get it work to work, but I can't. Um, what happens is, uh, basically, this crash test dummy uh, flail forwards uh, and uh, impacts the, the bulkhead. And it is predicted that there's quite significant uh, head injuries uh, involved with that. And some of the solutions to these uh, these two problems, the semi-sideways facing seat and the bulkhead seat, is to put airbags uh, in the aircraft. Um, I'm sure we all know that airbags have been around for many, many years in, uh, in the automobile industry. And the first uh, car to have airbags as an option was one of these things, an Oldsmobile from 1973. And airbags have actually been painted uh, since the 1950s, uh, and they were in both Germany and America. But aviation actually led uh, the automobile industry in this respect, that I found uh, a reference to a 1937 report by this chap, uh, Harry Armstrong, who I'm sure a number of you will have heard of. Um, he suggested when he was looking at uh, impact dynamics and, and uh, developing restraint systems that if you put an inflatable rubber seat back uh, in the back of transport aircraft, it would give people uh, a better chance uh, should the person in the seat behind flail forward. So it's one occasion where the aviation uh, industry was actually leading uh, the, the automobile industry. But the principle behind um, airbags uh, is using this uh, equation of motion, which I'm sure a few of you may remember from your O-level and GCSE uh, days, and I thought I'd never use that until I became an aviation medicine uh, specialist, but there we go. Uh, what you want to do is you want to increase this stopping distance, and by having an inflated airbag, you've got sort of 10 to 12 uh, inches uh, to increase your stopping distance. So you want to flail forward into... Uh, a fully inflated uh, airbag. So there are a number of options where you can you can do this, and there are also a number of problems. You can actually fit the airbag to the bulkhead. But the thing that we do in the aviation world, we tell everybody to adopt the brace position, i.e. head between your knees, hands over the back of your head, or, or clasping uh, around your, your ankles. Uh, but in this sort of position, you're actually causing a, a problem, which has been highlighted... Um, in the American football world. And this tackling procedure has been outlawed um, as a means of tackling the person. Basically, what you do is you act uh, as a battering ram and you tackle someone by punching them or uh, head-butting them into the stomach. As you do this, you're actually fixing the head so it stops it from sliding out. So you're literally fixing it and as your torso and your legs continue running into the man, you basically... Uh, cause this flexion compression injury uh, to the neck, which occurs in about sort of point, uh, 8.4 milliseconds. Uh, and there have been an, a, a number of uh, accidents uh, on the American football field due to this mechanism. And by having an airbag in which you've sort of braced yourself before it inflates, you're actually fixing uh, the head and neck, so you're preventing it from sliding out. So consequently, you could protect your head, but you're going to have problems uh, from uh, significant neck injuries. And the other option is to actually fit the airbags to the uh, restraint system, to the, to the lap strap. And I've actually flown in uh, an aircraft with these, and I was unbeknown to me, it was actually an airbag. I thought it was actually just padding on the restraint system. 
Uh, and none of the flight reference cars, none of the, 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 the pre-flight uh, safety briefing uh, identify that you're actually flying in a seat with an airbag. So again, if you're sat up and you haven't braced, it's fine. The airbag inflates, you flail forward, and everything's fine. However, if you're in that sort of position and the airbag inflates, you'll end up with significant uh, injuries. And the automobile industry has actually uh, identified what these problems are. Sitting too close to the dashboard, if you're a very short person, or if you're leaning forward to try and look uh, and rummage in your glove compartment and then you crash, uh, then during the inflation of the airbag, you get hyperextension uh, of the head and, uh, and neck. And there have been document cases of basal skull fractures, blowout fractures of the orbit, cervical spine fractures, brainstem avulsions, um, and various other head injuries. Uh, but also you get significant uh, chest injuries. You get crushing of, of the chest with aortic and pulmonary artery tears uh, and flail chest. And, and the other thing you can have uh, are upper limb injury, injuries, particularly if, you, if, if you, when you learn to drive, you had that sort of push-pull uh, way of actually turning the aircraft, sorry, turning, turning the car. Once you learn to drive properly, you go to a boy racer mode. And if the airbags inflate in that position, arms go back, smack you in the head, fracture your arms, can't release your uh, seatbelt, uh, and you get killed in the post-crash fire. And the similar thing will happen uh, in even if you don't brace. If you've got your hands on your lap and the airbag inflates, they go up, smack you in the head, break your fingers, can't release your restraint harness, or they smack the person next door to you or against the, the uh, uh, air aircraft uh, structure. Um, and it's a huge problem. And the other thing to think about is the infants. Uh, if you're traveling with an under two-year-old, uh, you have to sit on their lap. And consequently, if you're in this sort of position and your child inflates uh, in front of you, they'll be shooting off down the other end of the fuselage. So some significant problems uh, which, uh, from personal experience, nobody's actually sort of identified as a particular problem. The other thing, though, uh, airbags could potentially uh, solve the problem are sideways-facing seats. Not so much an issue in... Um, uh, civil airlines, but they are a problem in biz jets um, and also in the military world where we like to stick our troops down the back of Hercules and Chinooks and all these other aircraft to, to uh, traipse them around uh, the battle zone, um, but they're all in sideways facing seats. So when you crash or you have a significantly heavy landing, they're all going to flail forward uh, in this sort of position, and this is the sort of typical uh, canvas webbing type seat that is in the back uh, of a Hercules. And if you actually fit the airbags to a, a shoulder strap and a three-point harness, uh, the crash test dummy testing that has been carried out shows that you do quite well. Uh, but the problem with sideways-facing uh, seats um, is the fact that you uh, subject your neck to high sideways uh, moves or motion, and uh, you end up with uh, significant lateral compression fractures, unilateral fatigue facet dislocation, um, and also if you uh, have a normal sort of three-point lap strap, as we've got on um, uh, Lynx helicopters, you can actually get uh, cor uh, carotid artery in injury, and that uh, has been shown to be the case uh, during some cadaver tests that were carried out in the States. But when we try and uh, work out what is good, uh, what's a good seat, what's a bad seat, what's, what's a poor or good brace position, uh, we are limited uh, unless there are any volunteers in the audience, to use these things. Uh, anthropomorphic test dummies or crash test dummies. This one here on the left is a hybrid three. 
Uh, it was developed in sort of 1990, sorry, 1976 by, by General Motors, and it is essentially used for forward testing of uh, car crashes. And the big drawback from uh, the aviation point of view is the fact that it has a relatively rigid uh, spine. Uh, it doesn't flex forward as well as, uh, as the human does, and it's also virtually impossible to get that in the appropriate brace position. It's got a fixed uh, pelvis, you can sort of bend it forward about 45 degrees, and if you want to get it any further than that, you've got to sort of stand on it and, and tie it down, which is completely useless if you want to see what happens uh, dur during an impact. And the other thing you can use are these side impact uh, dummies or SIDs, uh, BioSID, WorldSID, and, and various other um, developments. But these have been used and designed specifically for the automobile uh, industry, which are not necessarily uh, what we need in the aviation world. That's what we're concerned about in aviation, uh, flailing sideways. This is what the side impact dummies has be, have been used uh, and developed for, intrusion injury. So you've got the bullet car here, the target car there, you've got the seat occupant there, and it's intrusion into that uh, uh, cabin <coughs> space. So we're, they're looking at uh, chest compressions plus uh, deceleration. So they're not particularly good uh, for flail-type injuries. But the automobile world is wising up to this, and certainly for sort of side impacts, not on the uh, sort of impact side, but on the, the opposite side of the aircraft, they do recognize that flail uh, impacts can be uh, a bit of a problem. So they're developing these sort of world SID um, uh, crash test dummies, which are slightly better in that they've got sort of fully formed arms. But the actual shoulders, as, they sh as you can see in this uh, uh, impact test, uh, are not hugely representative of the, what the human body does. It's a very soft shoulder, and actually the the, the um, restraint harness is actually dug down well into the sort of chest. So they're not particularly uh, useful uh, from that point of view. And they're all validated against automobile crashes. And the pass-fail criteria uh, which have been developed uh, show the the chances of sustaining an injury. Um, but the human body just doesn't uh, get subjected to pure tension, pure bending uh, of the limbs and, and the, uh, uh, the spine. It's usually a combination of flexion, torsion, bending. Um, and because of that, uh, the automobile industry is, is moving away from these sort of one, uh, one axis uh, sort, sort of uh, injury threshold criteria to injury criteria which look both at axial compression and bending in the tibia index and also uh, some spinal injury loading. But the trouble is the, the data that we have is purely validated in the sort of GX horizontal plane. We don't have sufficient crashes to actually validate them and use them uh, for injury prediction. And these, this is the maths that go with them. Uh, if you're particularly interested in that, you can memorize that. I'll move swiftly on from that. Um, but when we get a figure for whatever criteria we're looking, you can m plot them on injury probability uh, curves. And these literally have been developed by taking thousands of car crashes, looking at the actual injuries that were uh, occurring, and then modeling them and using the crash test dummies to get an injury probability curve. And unfortunately, we don't have such curves for the aviation world, be it ejection uh, or crash dynamics. So we're left with basically an educated guess. Uh, and unfortunately, that is not always uh, as good as we'd like to. So 
Uh, I put this plea out, can we have more plane crashes so we can actually validate uh, these, uh, these problems? So that's sort of how you survive the impacts and the crashes. The, the final thing you need to think about is, are the post-crash factors. There's no point in surviving the impact uh, if you die in the post-crash fire or if you get out of the aircraft, you die of exposure because you've crashed uh, in the Andes or, or in the Arctic or the desert for that matter. Um, there has been some work done uh, by the university at Greenwich looking at uh, where it's best to escape from the aircraft. And they suggest that it's uh, within sort of seven rows of the exit, be it an emergency exit or one of the normal exits, are probably the best place to, uh, to sit. From my point of view, I think stuff that for a lark. I want to be at the uh, emergency exit. Um, and... Um, those seats are, are, are sort of controlled in who can actually have them. And the CAA regulates that you need to be basically fit, well, healthy, not blind, uh, not old, and not too, too obese. And I'm sure it's, it's well applied in the UK, but I've travelled on a number of airlines around the world where um, I question the, the frailty of some aged passengers who sat at these uh, uh, emergency exits and also the obese. And one particular crash, uh, sorry, one particular flight I was on, uh, the chap could hardly walk down the aisle, let alone actually get through one of these emergency exits. So it's, uh, it, it has its uh, problems. Uh, but having said that, um, the question you need to ask yourself, are you willing to put your life in the hands of the person sat in 26F or whatever that seat happens to be. Um, because they're not as easy to open as you might think. You don't just open the handle and that's it. Uh, some of them are particularly awkward. You've got to sort of remove the, the protective cover, pull down the handle, remove the, the um, uh, door, turn it through 90 degrees and throw it out and then exit the aircraft. And when you've got flames lapping at your, your ankles... Um, I just wonder, is your average bloke who sat in that seat, is he capable of doing that for you? Uh, personally, I'm not going to take the risk, and I'll try my damnedest to get the emergency exit seat if I possibly can. Um, but having said that, um, the thing that really is a big killer um, from a po post-crash fire point of view is not so much the fire itself, but the smoke. Uh, and the, the air tours crash at uh, Manchester was a, was a prime example of this, that where the fatalities did occur, it wasn't because they were burnt, it was because uh, they couldn't get out because they lost consciousness due to uh, smoke inhalation. So should we be wearing one of these things? Should the airlines uh, be providing us with those uh, devices? Uh, should we have our own smoke hoods? Um, I know some people do actually carry them with them, and I've actually seen them uh, for sale advertised in the in-flight magazine, uh, but the airline itself didn't actually provide them. Uh, personally, I think we should, and uh, the argument really is should you spend more time faffing around trying to put these hoods on, or should you use those precious uh, few seconds or minutes to try and get out of the aircraft? Personally, I, I think I'd just wear them for takeoff and landing. It's, it's good fun because it just freaks out everybody else on the seat on the aircraft. But having said that, it's, fire uh, is also a problem, uh, particularly in the military world where people are being shot at uh, and also in the sort of civil light aircraft uh, where post-crash fires are significant. And uh, this uh, uh, film, I hope I can get it to work, here we can, uh, was some testing that we did a few years ago uh, looking at basic military combat clothing. All it is is a cotton shirt and a cotton pair of trousers. Uh, this is a four-second burn um, which is sort of illustrates a flash fire, and that is what happens when you don't wear flame retardant clothing.
Uh, it's quite dramatic, and these sort of dummies which are used, they're, they're all instrumented, so you can actually work out uh, from the computer algorithm that comes with it uh, your survivability. And for sort of bog-standard cotton clothing, um, for a four-second burn, you're, in, you're going to end up with 94% burns, uh, which equates to a survivability in the young age group of about 30%, in the older age group, less than uh, sort of 10%. However, if you put uh, yourself in a position where you have flame-retardant clothing, this is what happens. Same four-second burn. Uh, and the only thing that was burning was the foam in the uh, pen pocket up here and his laces as well. Uh, but if you look at the algorithm, which is based on the American Burn Association uh, data, uh, essentially for the 29 uh, age group, uh, you've got virtually 100% survival. So uh, if you next time you go on holiday, uh, wear some thermal long johns and some thermal clothing. Don't do what these people do, uh, wear flip-flops, shorts, and, uh, and a vest. I suppose it hasn't really taken into account the thermal uh, insulation properties of tattoo ink, but um, there we go. Um, so what can we say in conclusion? These are my survival top tips. Sit in an exit row. Uh, sit in a rear-facing seat. Sit in the centre of an aircraft, but hopefully with a, with a first-class layout. Uh, wear flame-retardant clothing. Wear a smoke hood. Uh, fly only in the UK, North America, or Germany. Um, only fly in a single-engined aircraft if it's fitted with uh, an ejection seat. <laughs> and if you want to see uh, part two of this lecture where we're looking at more ejection seat injuries, please do come to the symposium next uh, Tuesday. And finally, whatever you do, don't uh, drive to the airport. <laughs> Which brings me to my final slide, and hopefully this slide will put into perspective what aviation medicine is all about. It's probably one of the finest uh, pieces of work um, ever done in aviation medicine, beats anything that John Ernsting has published, uh, Bill Stewart has published, uh, certainly the work of John Stapp. And basically, it was from the Journal of the American uh, Medical Association from 1991, which was looking at the causes of death um, in doctors from an American uh, university in California. And in analyzing how they were killed, uh, they came up with the startling fact that a, a number of doctors uh, were killed in aviation crashes. Uh, and it was actually st uh, statistically significant as well. And after much deliberation and uh, questioning why this should be the case, it came up with three fundamental uh, facts about aviation medicine uh, in, uh, in, uh, in reality. Basically, doctors are rich, rich people take up flying, and flying is dangerous. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much.